This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, the rise of narco-religion and exploring religious controversies in Mexico. But first, Sierra Hancock has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. A clash in Chile left two student protesters dead. The protesters were trying to spray anti-government graffiti on a wall in the port city of Valparaiso. One member of the family that owned the wall shot the protesters. Although police quickly arrested a 22-year-old man and charged him with murder, student protesters argued the police and government have not done enough to protect their rights. Student protest leader Valentina Saavedra condemned the killings at a news conference. The truth is, this is a very painful time for the student movement. We, the students, think that we have an unjust system, a violent system. Students across Chile have protested for the past four years for a more equitable and less expensive university system. Often these protests have remained peaceful, but police have used force in the past to break up large student groups. Until this week, only one other person had been killed during the series of protests in Chile. Cuba's President Raul Castro made several surprise announcements this week, including that he is considering a return to religion and Catholicism. Castro's surprise came after a personal meeting between the Cuban leader and Pope Francis in the Vatican. Castro said he wants to personally thank the Pope for his diplomacy in bringing Cuba and the United States together to work on normalizing diplomatic relations. Castro and Pope Francis also discussed the Pope's planned trip to Cuba later this year. Also this week, Castro said he is ready to name an ambassador to the United States. The U.S. State Department, however, says the countries are still working out details of normalization and there is no set timetable yet to officially open embassies. The justice system in Argentina moved this week to close down further speculation regarding the mysterious death of Special Prosecutor Alberto Nisman. An official board of coroners met and ruled that Nisman's death was a suicide. Nisman's ex-wife, who is a federal judge, has employed an independent forensic team that says the prosecutor was murdered. Also this week, a federal court officially closed and sealed a case that Nisman had pursued. Allegations against President Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner and members of her government that they conspired with Iran to cover up details of a terrorist bombing from the 1990s. Colombia officially suspended all anti-cocaine flights operated by the U.S. this week. The aerial spraying program uses the herbicide Roundup to eradicate coca, the plant that provides the basis for the drug cocaine. Colombians are concerned about the aerial spraying program because the World Health Organization and European studies say Roundup may cause cancer. U.S. officials say that reductions in the spraying program have meant an almost 40% increase in coca production. Colombia is the top supplier of cocaine to the underground market in the U.S., although Peru remains the world's leading exporter of cocaine. Remember that missing book that we told you about last week? The signed first edition work by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, worth at least $60,000? Well, police in Colombia retrieved the book this week. Thieves had stolen the book from a special exhibit honoring Garcia Marquez at the International Book Festival in Bogota. Police found the book, where else, but 
at a bookstore. It was already on a shelf of used books for sale. Police are still combing video footage of the book fair to find the thieves. But they strongly suspect dealers in rare and antique books may have had a hand in the theft. For Latin Pulse, I'm Sierra Hancock. Thanks, Sierra. This week, we dive deeply into the underworld, both literally and figuratively. What are we to make of the ties between drug cartels and folk saints in Mexico? Is there a rising tide of narco-religion? We turn to Andrew Chestnut at Virginia Commonwealth University for answers. Chestnut is the author of Devoted to Death, Santa Muerte, The Skeleton Saint, among other books. Here are excerpts from our conversation recorded via Skype from Richmond, Virginia. Really kind of the most common pattern that we see with many of the Mexican drug cartels is the adoption of certain patron saints. In some cases, there'll be folk saints, such as Santa Muerte or Saint Death, or the original narco saint who's been most associated from the Sinaloa cartel because he is from cartel, uh, he is from Sinaloa, Jesus Malverde. And, uh, and actually also the adoption of canonized Catholic saints as well. Um, for a while, the Tijuana cartel on the border with San Diego, actually uh, the patroness saint of, of that particular cartel was the Virgin of Guadalupe herself. And uh, we also have information that, uh, that one of the three giants of the Mexican religious landscape, uh, St. Jude Thaddeus, whose devotion has just mushroomed since the 1980s, uh, also has the allegiance of a fair amount of, uh, of uh, Mexican narcos as well. Um, one particular cartel, the Knights Templar, who originally were, were born in the state of Michoacan as La Familia Michoacana, who really kind of went beyond the adoption of a particular saint, patron saint of the cartel, and kind of developed and codified a kind of pseudo-evangelical messianic ideology uh, and, and that, of course, is reflected in, in the name of the cartel, or at least the, the second name of the cartel, the Knights Templar, in which they really saw themselves and sold themselves to the drug-torn state of Michoacan as the saviors and protectors of Michoacan from both um, rival cartels, and it was most specifically the, the Zetas, the Zetas, who were Challenging, uh, challenging that cartel for hegemony over Michoacan, but also, but also protecting them from uh, from law enforcement, uh, particularly federal law enforcement as well. So we don't see the same level of, you know, we're really not talking. Although I do make a a comparison with ISIS, it's not that these cartels are primarily motivated by by religious reasons, but but they have adopted and integrated uh, religious elements. Mexico is the second largest Catholic population on Earth, and the third largest Christian Catholic uh, Christian community on Earth as well. So it's to be expected that people on the wrong side of the law also have their own uh, religious orientation. Let's talk a bit about the Knights Templar. This particular group, uh, the Mexican government continues to say that they've stamped them out. They they seem to have nine lives, like many of these cartels <laughs> seem to have. But this particular group um, developed not just a, a, a religious ideology, or and, and also I guess mixed that with its political ideology, but also was taken with wearing uh, medieval helmets and um, had crests. And I, I've seen some pictures with some of their drug 
foot soldiers with swords and and those sorts of things. Uh, th- that's a bit of a strange mix, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Again, they went further than any other cartel in actually adopting the regalia and the costumes of 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 you know the Knights Templar, the original medieval Knights Templar, who would help give safe passage to pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. Yeah, so that really was the innovation. And and part of that really was La Tuta, Servando Gomez, in being really one of the more savvy uh, media capos, media kingpins of all the uh, all the capos in Mexico as well. And so I, I think, you know, he went beyond others, was very media friendly. Uh, there's There's lots of videos that you can access on YouTube. And I think it was just more savvy in, in marketing the cartel as the protectors and saviors of, of Michoacan and did did a much more effective job uh, than, than rival cartels in other states. Certainly, if we talk about the use of YouTube, uh, that's a different use than we normally see cartels doing on YouTube. Often they're they're posting very violent videos, terroristic videos that display some of the killings that they are involved in. Uh, so you're saying in his case, it, w- it was definitively a campaign to look like kinder, gentler protectors. Right. That that, and also and also to imb- implicate certain journalists and government officials who were, who were collaborating with him. So he'd put up videos of of uh, of him having a meeting with the former governor of Michoacan's son, you know, over rounds of beer as well. And so that was also very skillful use to show the extent to which his cartel uh, had penetrated uh, the governing, the body politic of the state of Michoacan and beyond. You mentioned earlier some cartels that were venerating La Virgen de Guadalupe, which is the patron saint of, of Mexico. Uh, certainly some irony there, and I, I would guess the Catholic Church would have deemed that blasphemous. Yeah, of course, but it, it's it's interesting that you really don't hear about that much. But of course, if we think about the original Italian Cosa Nostra, original Italian mafia, of course, you know all of their patron saints were were Catholic saints, and so um, that tradition was carried on in Latin America as well. And there's some who speculate that the meteoric rise of St. Jude Thaddeus over the past three decades in Mexico is tied to narcos from the Medellin cartel in Colombia who are great devotees of St. Jude and brought their devotion to him over to Mexico because before the 1980s, St. Jude was practically unknown in Mexico. My parents-in-law who were in their mid-80s and lived in Michoacan their entire lives you know, told me that St. Jude was, was practically unknown in their Catholic youth and Catholic Catholic formation uh, throughout their entire adulthood in Mexico. And now, even more than Santa Muerte, St. Jude has a multi-class following in Mexico. It's not only poor, marginal, urban youth, but uh, multi-class devotion there. We should mention some differences here in that St. Jude, recognized by the Catholic Church, Santa Morte condemned by the Catholic Church. Exactly, and it's, this is really this is really intriguing here because um, you know it's not every day that the Vatican itself weighs in and actually condemns a folk saint as they did last year when the top top uh, Vatican official Italian cardinal, some speculated might be Pope, 
came to a four-day visit to Mexico City, and on each separate day, managed to actually condemn the cult uh, of Santa Muerte as anti-religion, blasphemy, uh, not his his exact words, but kind of, you know, the poster girl, the poster child for uh, what they call the culture of death. And of course, Mexico has had a very florid culture of death, unfortunately, since 2006, in which we're probably looking at some 100,000 Mexicans having died in this ongoing drug war that was really ramped up by former President Calderon, who took office in late uh, 2006. And so, yeah, two of the three giants of the Mexican landscape are competing at their national shrines just a few miles away in Mexico City. St. Jude, St. Jude is now the only Catholic saint that I'm aware of in the entire world who now has a monthly feast. His annual feast is the 28th of October, but now every 28th of each month, he has a feast throughout Mexico. And this is primarily in response to the competition of Santa Muerte, who has a monthly rosary service in Tepito, the most notorious barrio Mexico City, the first day of each month. And so this, this monthly St. Jude feast wasn't started until uh, Santa Muerte Rosary start, uh, service started uh, around 2002-2003. You have written specifically about Arturo Beltran Leva, who used to be the head of the Beltran Leva cartel, as an admirer and worshiper of Santa Muerte. So we see direct worship of this folk saint by cartel leaders. Oh, right, right. And, and you know, Every every month or so, you know, some some cartel member is nabbed either a safe house in which uh, there's a Santa Muerte altar or which he might be tattooed with Santa Muerte or a Santa Muerte medallion. So, yeah, I I think it's probably safe to say, although at this point it's impossible to quantify this, but uh, I, I think Santa Muerte probably has greater allegiance among Mexican cartel members than any other religious figure. Although, again, um, uh, St. Jude and also particularly among the Sinaloa cartel, Jesus Malverde is also uh, quite prominent. I want to talk about Jesus Malverde in a bit, but let's talk about the essence of folk religion intertwined into cartel culture. Because we're going to hear on this same program from someone who says that the cartels are also using curanderos as a way um, to terrorize uh, rival cartels and and other people who might be trying to stop their business. Um, do you see that sort of activity happening from your experience? Yeah, I, I think. I mean, the way the way they go about, and because obviously there's curanderos who work with these folk saints, and actually with some of the canonized saints as well. And so, and so, certain cartel members would employ these curanderos for both works of protection, protecting their shipment, protecting their men from chiefly rival cartels and, of course, law enforcement, but also for for works of injury and harm to others, and again, chiefly law enforcement and rival cartels. Um, and and this is where the folk saints. Santa Muerte and Jesus Malverde really have the upper hand over the canonized saints because since they aren't Christian saints 
it's easier for everybody to ask them for works of injury and harm to others, uh, perhaps with la less repercussions, because since they aren't Christian saints, then at least in theory, they're open to these types of perhaps morally dubious petitions. Curanderos, uh, some may not know, are more or less practitioners of magic. Uh, how would you translate that term, curandero? Uh, it's usually translated as folk healer, and of course, it comes from the verb curar or to cure. And so, so yeah, it, mo essentially, their most important task is is that of healing. Uh, their repertoire is much greater than that, but at their essence, most people seek out curanderos for healing, and and. You know, these folk saints also are major healers as well. I, I talk about this as well. Santa Muerte is not only a patron of narcos, but she's also curandera herself. A lot of a lot of people who are looking for some type of uh, healing of, of their illness, be it a physical illness or psycho psychological illness, ask Santa Muerte for that as well. We haven't talked about Jesus Malverde on this program before. What, what can you tell us about that particular veneration? Yeah, Jesus Malverde is a really fascinating character um, based on probably a fictional, mythical account of a, um, there's different accounts. Some say that he was a cattle rustler uh, who got in trouble with the law and was unjustly executed. Um, there's different versions, but if you look at the way he's portrayed, he looks like uh, he looks like one of the leading uh, Mexican actors of the 1950s, uh, Vicente Fernandez. He's got the little bow tie and such, and and really, really was um, really was the original narco saint associated with the Sinaloa cartel, which until recently was you know by far the most powerful cartel in Mexico. Um, we know that El Chapo Guzman, who's now uh, under lock and key. Uh, is one of his uh, prominent devotees. But like in the case of Santa Muerte, he's not only a narco saint. There's lots of Sinaloans. There's also a lot of northern Mexicans who are devotees of Jesus Malverde who have no nothing to do with the drug trade. What makes him a saint? What makes him venerated? Uh, that's a really good question. And um, these folk saints usually develop a reputation and are considered holy on the basis of their miracle-working powers. Um, that's what most devotees are looking for. Um, they might be miracles that you and I consider rather mundane, but most people are looking to resolve issues usually related to health, wealth, and love, um, and, uh, and protection as well. And so when, when these people, and they're usually act, actual real Latin American men and women who were born, lived, and died on, on Latin American soil, many of whom die a violent death or an unjust death as well, and then, uh, and then shortly after their death, develop a reputation as, as, you know, becoming spirits and working miracles for people. And so Latin America is kind of unique in that you have scores of these of these so-called folk saints from Argentina up to Mexico who in many cases command greater devotion than the canonized folk saints and one of the reasons is they have the obvious advantage is 
they all, with the exception of Santa Muerte, who's considered to actually represent or personify death itself, they all were Latin Americans, most of them real Latin Americans. And so they're seen as much more accessible and personable than these Catholic saints, the great majority of whom lived centuries ago, mostly in Europe. Anything else you'd like to talk to us about regarding narco-religion? Yeah, I think I think one one really interesting it really puts the Catholic Church in Mexico in the bind uh, in a bind. We're we're really you know this is again the second largest Catholic Church on earth, and you know I can't go a week without seeing some priest or bishop in Mexico from the pulpit denouncing Santa Muerte as satanic. However, again, you see very precious little denunciation or, or discussion of the fact that some of their own canonized saints, and again, chiefly St. Jude, are also well integrated into the faith of many cartels as well. And so that's even potentially a greater problem, the fact that some of their, their own canonized saints are being used uh, by the cartels for their own nefarious purposes. And, and I, I think it's, it's, it's really interesting, too, that, that uh, Santa Muerte uh, so quickly, I mean, what, Santa Muerte is basically unknown to 99% of Mexicans until she goes public in 2001, and yet she's already in the space of a decade been condemned by the Vatican. So that also makes me wonder if her male counterpart, the Argentine Santa Muerte, will be next to be con- condemned by the Vatican because, of course, our Argentine Pope is more than familiar with uh, San Muerte, whose cult is also burgeoning in Argentina and Paraguay, not to the same extent as Santa Muerte in Mexico, but is, is growing very fast as well. Thank you so much, Andrew Chestnut of Virginia Commonwealth University. Join us via Skype on Latin Pulse today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back, Rick. Coming up, more on curanderos and Mexican folk religion from the author of A War of Witches. Stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination and domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn, indignate, act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Tim Nabb is a professor of anthropology at the Universidad de las Americas in Puebla, Mexico. He's the author of several books, including Mad Jesus and A War of Witches. Nabb is also a practicing curandero, or folk healer. Hear excerpts from our conversation conducted via Skype from Puebla. You first of all have to understand that witchcraft is not European hocus-pocus mumbo-jumbo here. Uh, Witchcraft is murder. It is not something that is just simply sympathetic magic. Uh, It consists of the transmission of rare tropical diseases. Uh, It consists of the use of different kinds of poisons. Uh, Even when you burn certain leaves, it produces a smoke that's deadly. Um, This isn't something that you should just play with. Serious witches are serious 
problems. You can't go to a cop and tell him, well, so-and-so murdered so-and-so with witchcraft. He's going to laugh at you. Uh, the techniques of witchcraft are basically murder. And there are a number of people who I know who are very effective witches who work with cartels. So the cartels have witches in their employ or go They're, out and seek them? Oh, they've gone out and sought quite a few of them that I know that I have been told. The specifics of these connections between the practicers of what we might call black magic or witchcraft and cartels, um, you know enough to have um, written about this trend um, in War of Witches. Given the violence in Mexico these days, this then has continued in a strong way. Oh, yes. Um, let's put it this way. The role of witchcraft, even in small villages, is to eliminate problems. How do you eliminate problems? You eliminate people. Um, and that's exactly what the cartels do. If they can do it without getting their hands dirty, that's much easier. The problem with witchcraft is it's not a sure thing. Um, you're never certain that you're going to give someone enough of a poison or that he'll eat it or that um, they'll contract a rare disease. Um, witchcraft is more of a potential uh, than it is a sure thing. I mean, it's not like going out and shooting someone. You can contract someone to do witchcraft or basically poison someone or attack them, and it can be very effective. I mean, there's one thing that I've seen that uh, is common that witches do. They have something called the embrace of the bat. I talked to a kung fu specialist, and she said, oh, yeah, that breaks the uh, neck just uh, below the uh, nape, and uh, it's generally fatal. They teach it to... Um, special forces and uh, things like that. It's a fairly commonly known hold. So to, to, to break away from the spiritual aspects, um, when we're talking about some of these practices, as you, as you point out, we're talking about um, uh, someone who knows um, quite a bit about the use of poisons. We're talking about someone who knows very much about um, the way that a person's body works and then how to disable it or to to um, cause a fatal blow. These are what would be part of this tradition? Of... Oh, yes. And it's part of a very Mesoamerican tradition because uh, a witch or a corandero in this tradition first has to pray to the underworld lords, asking them for aid and assistance and asking them to make sure that his witchcraft works. Um, as a corandero inquires acquires different naguals or animal alter egos. Each one has a good aspect, which helps a curandero in curing and dream analysis, and a bad aspect, which the curandero can use to uh, <clears throat> get rid of somebody. So basically the same people that cure can also very often do uh, extreme harm. Let me ask, anything else you would like to add about connections that you see between the cartels and the curanderos, the, the witches of Mexico? Well, it's not just the car cartels. There are several Mexican politicians who have employed uh, witches as well. 
unfortunately, legally, you're never going to be able to get the judicial system to believe that witchcraft is murder. But it is. And in this situation, it's not murder all the time. There is a lot of witchcraft, which is nothing more than uh, hocus-pocus, uh, sympathetic magic, going down into a cave and praying for somebody's death. But there are many, many people who know some very sinister techniques. And this has been a part of witchcraft in Mexico since pre-Columbian times. Thank you very much. Our guest today, anthropologist Tim Nabb of the Universidad de las Americas, the University of the Americas in Puebla, Mexico. Thank you for being on Latin Pulse. Okay. You're more than welcome. Good luck. Thanks for joining us for our program on narco-religion in Mexico. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and we're also now available via the podcasting service called Stitcher. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, production assistant Sierra Hancock and producer Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escúchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. Music